The term brand and the act of branding a person or idea or company will have a somewhat different meaning depending on who you talk to and what aspect of the world of branding they work in or have reason to know about. The field of branding includes work as diverse as building websites and managing influencer campaigns, designing style guides and writing copy. It can involve renting billboard space and renting conference space developing multimedia presences, and developing relationships. Approached holistically, a brand is the amalgamation of all our potential perceptions of something. So Coca-Cola's brand is made up of their logo and catchphrases, their commercials and jingles, their color schemes and typefaces and interactive apps, and the technology built into their in-restaurant soda dispensers. It's their history and how they communicate that history, the people who work at corporate headquarters and their reputations. It's their quarterly reports and the thickness and texture of the paper those reports are printed upon. It's also the many associations established by Coca-Cola over their many decades of existence, including their associations with certain colors and sounds and keywords like happiness and share and smile and inclusivity and their associations with people, both real and fake, from Elton John to Santa Claus. Just as important as what your brand is associated with, though, is what it's not associated with. This component of the branding world is so important that there are entire sub-industries dedicated to crisis management and damage control, often relying on strategies and tactics from the world of public relations, but also involving all the fields I mentioned previously, utilized to distance a brand from a particular idea or person or event, rather than tightening those same relationships. The social media component of crisis management has become a particularly vital tool in the brander's toolbox of late. Because of the role social media has shouldered in establishing a consistent tone for everything from smallish personal brands to the brand umbrellas of massive corporations, organizations, and even countries and governments. The nature of the online world has made it possible to suture a potentially deadly perceptual wound quickly because of the social internet's immediacy, ubiquity, and vast reach. That same immediacy, ever-presence and reach, though, has made the online world, and online social platforms in particular, one of the most common sources of problems that require the attention and effort of crisis managers. What I want to talk about today is one specific facet of that larger problem-causing and problem-solving dichotomy, focusing particularly on public perception, brand association, and YouTube. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Imagine for a moment that you really like pineapples. Like, really, really like pineapples. They are your favorite fruit by far. It's not even a competition. You love their charming spikiness. You love their almost painfully tart taste. 
You love their history as a symbol of wealth in European countries, due in part to their regional exoticism and association with the abundance, for the Europeans at least, of colonization, which in turn led to remarkable trends like constructing buildings in the shape of pineapples and adorning serving trays and other guest-facing household accoutrements with their image. You love pineapples so much, in fact, that you decide to produce a series of short informational videos about them. Videos full of beautiful diagrams pointing out the different components of a pineapple and how to prepare this fruit and how to use them in a variety of dishes. And you pair that educational content with a bunch of just really beautiful photos and videos of pineapples. You then post those videos on YouTube and are pleased with the reaction. People really seem to enjoy learning more about your favorite spiky little friends. But then, strangely, you begin to see weirdly discontinuous commentary mixed in with the topical conversation. Some of the comments reference a particular moment in the video, giving a time code and nothing else, while others are responses to those time codes using words you would not have expected to see in an educational video about fruit. Yes, they say, or yum, I'd eat the hell out of that. You start to check out the YouTube profiles of some of the strange commenters and eventually discover that they are going gaga over anything pineapple related. And what's more, some of their comments they left on your videos, when combined with the other comments they left on other pineapple-related videos, paint a clearer picture of what's going on here. These profiles belong to people who have developed some kind of pineapple fetish. They're not watching your videos to be educated or even to just appreciate the pineapple as a magnificent fruit. They are watching your videos because it is in some way titillating to them. It turns them on. And they are sharing those videos with their friends who have similar pineapple fetishes, providing time codes in the comments to point this particular network of pineapple fetishists toward the, to them, most pornographic portions of your videos. Now, imagining all that, how do you think you might feel discovering this? Discovering the context of these comments being left and discovering that this type of group exists and that you and your videos are playing an unwilling role in that group's satisfaction. Learning that some of these views, these likes, that you were a bit proud of maybe, may have been the consequence of people appreciating your content for something other than what you wanted to share with the world. And not an appreciation for the noble pineapple at all, but some kind of purely sexual attraction to the shape of the pineapple. How might that make you feel? Let's take this intellectual exercise a little bit further and imagine that instead of pineapples, what's being viewed is you. The videos that you're sharing are not educational fruit-related productions, but instead they are videos about you and your life. Moments from your day, sharing aspects of your life that are not at all sexual or even vaguely suggestive or connected to anything pornographic. And yet, regardless, it is being perceived that way by some of these online denizens. They're liking your videos and leaving comments and helping others who are like them, presumably, to find your work. And they are pointing out moments in your video to each other that turn them on the most and passing your video link around like they would a dirty magazine. At this point, the feeling of invasiveness might become overwhelming. 
The idea that someone, somewhere, and perhaps a great many someones, is looking at you in that way, is ignoring all the other things about you that you hoped to share, that you wanted to focus on. They're using you for some other purpose entirely. You are being reduced to something that you are not, at least in your own perception of yourself. Above and beyond the sexual aspect of this situation, it can just be disorienting to have a subjective experience that is not shared or even acknowledged by others. To you, these videos are nothing but everyday experiences intended to share something of your life with the world. To someone else, though, that perspective is unseen or ignored and replaced with something else entirely. Even if they weren't coming away with what some might consider to be a reductive view of you, that miscalibration of understandings can unto itself be disconfitting. Let's make one more imaginary leap here and assume that instead of pineapples and instead of you, what these videos show is children. Children who are posting videos of themselves playing with toys or unboxing new toys. Videos of children shared by proud parents, documenting their son's first gymnastics class or their daughter's first soccer goal. The normal sorts of videos that parents post to their kids and that kids might shoot of themselves, provided they have the tools to do so. That is what we're talking about here and what is being reinterpreted by some on the internet as being pornographic, as being titillating. And then those reinterpreted videos are being shared. The most supposedly turn-on worthy pieces of those videos noted by timestamps in the comments. And the accounts that favorite and save the most beloved videos of this subculture and which leave those timestamp comments are passed out. They're rented out. They are borrowed so that more and more people who have this point of view about these types of videos can get the optimal experience, according to their standards for optimal, at least. Now, imagine that as a consequence of these types of networks, this community that is going out and watching and liking and video playlist making in this way, as a consequence of that, the algorithms of the platform upon which these videos are shared, YouTube, have begun to recommend videos to watch next based on the tastes of these particular viewers. And because of that, there is a decent chance that viewing one such video with or without those same intentions will lead you to another and another and so on. The only commonality between these videos is that they were curated, handpicked, and organized into a collection by a group of people who are into looking at children as sexual objects. Now, stepping back from the midst of that scenario for a moment, Imagine that you are a brand manager for a multinational company and you've just discovered that marketing materials for your brand are being displayed alongside videos that have made it into this collection of recommended videos, recommended by this group of people. What I just described, that last bit there, not the pineapple part, the last part, brings us to the article that I want to unspool today. It comes from Bloomberg, and it's entitled, Nestle and Disney Pull YouTube Ads, Joining Furrer Over Child Videos. This piece is super short, and it focuses on two main companies, Nestle and Disney, that have pulled their advertising from YouTube after revelations about this so-called softcore pedophilia ring came to light. 
The genesis of this story actually starts with a Reddit post published by a YouTuber and blogger named Matt Watson, who shared evidence of YouTube users posting inappropriate comments on videos of children alongside a video that he then created in which he demonstrates how YouTube's recommendation algorithms created what he called a, quote, wormhole of pedophilia, end quote through which people seeking out videos of children that could be considered sexual through some lenses would then be offered more of the same, and on and on and on forever. So YouTube accidentally, as a result of its financial incentives and the code that it uses to make more money in accordance with those incentives, has been promoting a network of videos curated and shared and amplified by a pedophilia-focused and pedophilia-supporting community of users. This is a story that builds upon another story that landed back in late 2017, when these comments on posts of children originally started to percolate to the surface and were reported on by the BBC and The Guardian, which led to seemingly temporary brand budget freezes from companies like Adidas, Deutsche Bank, Mars, Cadbury, and many others. The issue was then amplified further that same month by revelations that YouTube's search result autocomplete system was presenting pedophilia-themed suggestions, adding what we might consider predictably horrible endings if you typed the words how to have into the search box and then allowed the predictive software to offer suggestions on what to search for based on those initial words. There was apparently enough creepy searching taking place on their platform that the software was learning to predict for and serve up more pedophilia-themed creepiness. This, along with another issue that popped up in 2017, where brands were having their ads show up alongside ISIS propaganda videos and videos that included anti-Semitic hate speech, led to a back-end system that gave advertisers the ability to more granularly control where their ads showed up on the network, including barring their marketing materials from being shown alongside anything considered to be high-risk or confrontational, if they choose to do so. This change also removed the monetization potential from videos containing even adjacent references to a slew of different content categories, like violence and drugs and terrorism. That, and a collection of other mostly back-end changes implemented by the YouTube advertising team, seems to have helped bring most of those brands back to the table. But this new set of revelations has many of them leaving once more, with McDonald's, GNC, Purina, Canada Goose, gaming company Epic, the maker of the wildly popular Fortnite video game, among others. They are all pausing their advertising on YouTube, alongside the aforementioned Disney and Nestle, while the company figures things out, and presumably comes up with some kind of solution that reassures these brands that their image will not be associated with what has become considered softcore child pornography. So that's the news item here, but I think it's important to take a step back from this to address some of the assumptions that are being made within this story. First, most definitions of pornography include the requirement that the media in question portrays subject matter for the exclusive purpose of sexual arousal. That doesn't mean that it has to portray sex or even the naked body. There's plenty of porn for all kinds of permutations of the idea of arousal, for all kinds of fetishes that do not show a single inch of flesh or a single private part. 
but it does require the depiction of something with the intended purpose of sexual arousal, which in this case would not seem to apply since the videos in question have been posted by people who do not seem to even realize these creepy comments are being left in their comment section or that their videos are being shared in this way. They have no idea, in a lot of cases, that they or their children are being ogled by these creepsters on the internet. Second, whether it's actually pornographic or not, these companies are well within their rights to not pay to be associated with content that has become a moral or media hot potato. For any reason or no reason at all, advertisers can decide it is not worth having their brand message, the things that they hope you think about when you think about them and their products and services, muddled by association, implied or otherwise, with something confrontational. So these brands stepping away from this issue and pulling their funds from the entire platform temporarily as a precaution may not be as big a condemnation as these articles might imply. Brands flee all kinds of things, just in case, all the time, because of the nature of these types of implied associations and the headaches they can cause, rightly or wrongly. Third, there is a very strong overcompensation effect from brands that can be easily triggered by those who recognize that this effect is in place. In this case, it would seem that at least some of these companies were made aware of this growing scandal by folks on social media who read about it on Reddit, maybe, and then saw the video on YouTube and noted that Nestle had an ad running on one of these videos that had become perceptually, by some, turned into porn. They then tweeted at Nestle to let them know. Now, if enough of these messages are received by a company's social media team, or even if just one hits at the right moment in the right way, their crisis management reflexes will trigger, and they will extract themselves from a burgeoning scandal before it can catch them in its tendrils. Sometimes, this tendency is utilized by advocates for certain politics or causes, as has been the case with some liberal and progressive advocates in particular who call out advertisers on polemical, primarily right-wing cable news shows, showing those advertisers some of the scandal potential stuff that those hosts have been saying, and then either implicitly or explicitly threatening to amplify that brand's association with that host who has said these things if they do not pull their ad advertising dollars. Those who do not disassociate themselves pulling those ad dollars are often then barraged with more social media messages filled with outrage, and in some cases, they are targeted with PR efforts that hope to get news outlets reporting on that connection, tying these brands more tightly to these hosts at the center of these scandals. Those brands that do pull their ads are often rewarded by those very same internet denizens with a pat on the back for doing the right thing, according to their standards, which is a nice little bonus alongside the latent benefit of avoiding some type of growing scandal. The rightness and wrongness of these sorts of efforts will usually depend on who's doing the threatening and for what cause, and how well those causes align with their own ideological beliefs. So it's possible to look at this same tactic used by two different groups and come away with different ideas about whether it's right or wrong, depending on which group aligns with us and things that we think are good and correct.
But being aware of this tendency of brands to respond quickly and reflexively and often somewhat unthinkingly, not with any particular motivation other than trying to save their own skins from scandal, that can remind us that the direction in which they jump is not necessarily an indication of any particular ideological slant that's held by that corporation or person. It might just be the most correct action according to the standards of self-preservation and the desire to not get dirtied when the mud starts flying. Fourth, in this case, it is not the content, but rather the meta-content, the comments, the playlists that these videos are added to, or the keywords that are added onto them so that these people can find them more easily. It's not the content, but the meta-content that is causing the problems here. I used an example earlier about posting videos about pineapples, and how if you were to post such videos celebrating the wonderfulness of the noble pineapple, and then somebody stepped in and started sexually fetishizing those pineapples and your videos of them, that's not on you. That's not something that you can control or be expected to control. I would add that to even imply that this negative secondary interpretation of our content is our fault, be it of pineapples or selfies or videos of our children, to even imply that is a very slippery slope. After all, by that logic, if you wanted something removed from the internet, be it an idea that you don't agree with or a video posted by a competitor in a space that you want to own, all you'd have to do is present that content as something that someone, somewhere, is sexualizing in some way. The idea that someone somewhere finding something to be indecent or sexual or pornographic is legitimate grounds to pull that thing from the internet is a near certain way to make sure that we are unable to ever share anything with anyone ever again. As the famous Rule 34 of the internet states, if it exists, there is porn of it. And that's increasingly true as our collective abilities to create and disseminate increase year by year. We could look at this and become frightened and pull back and decide that the great experiment has failed and that everything has been sexualized, even our beloved pineapples. So it's time to shut it all down, pull all the plugs, and go back to rubbing sticks together for heat. Or we can decide to acknowledge that we cannot control other people's perceptions, even if we try really hard to do so. Which means we can either sit and stew over our concerns that someone somewhere might be looking at things different from how we are looking at those things. Or we can attempt to moderate and regulate and limit the damaging potential of anything that could get abusive, while doing our best to avoid limiting creative expression and harming victims as a consequence. Finally, it's important to recognize that this issue... Although it's technically a different story and involves seemingly different entities and concerns, is actually part of the larger story that we are seeing play out across many different companies and many different types of content, centering around the fact that the incentives guiding what we build and how the things we build operate are at times orthogonal to, and at times antagonistic toward, our societal well-being and the well-being of the individual user of these systems. What that means more specifically is that, yes, this one instance is bad because YouTube's commenting system and recommendation algorithms are allowing creepsters to behave creepily on their platform. 
Creepsters are going to creep, and one man's creepster is another man's normal, well-adjusted human being. But in this case, I think most of us can agree that it's probably prudent to implement some kind of change to make sure abuse is not taking place, and the manipulation and victimization of children is not happening on this wildly popular, especially with children, social platform. But addressed from a more macro level, why does YouTube's system behave this way in the first place? And one of the answers to that question about why this type of system can be abused and become abusive so easily is that the folks who run the platform are trying to build systems and interfaces that keep us glued to our screens at all costs. And one of the more reliable ways to do that involves showing us more and more and more of what we have seemed to enjoy in the past. All those recommendations are intended to keep us gazing into our computers and our phones, watching endless videos, which in turn allows them to show us endless advertisements, which in turn allows them to make more and more money from our attention. Damn the consequences. Part of the story here is that yes, children are being sexualized in a way that should not be allowed, much less encouraged, by the underlying systems governing this platform. Another part of this story, though, is that we have built a world in which children are playing with their toys, doing unboxing videos for an imaginary camera, because they spend so much of their time consuming content that teaches them that compulsive consumption is good and normal, and tells them what they should want to consume, and tells them how to behave as a good consumer. These are tools, by the way, that also allow us to do amazing things. They provide us with incredible creative capabilities and connect us in ways that we are still figuring out how to use as productively as possible. These are not uniformly horrible things, YouTube or any of the other services that tend to have these types of problems. But the downsides of these tools can be difficult to discuss especially in everyday mainstream conversation. It's tricky to even know what words to use sometimes when we want to talk about how disorienting it is to see children parroting the bizarre stuff that they're exposed to on the internet, on platforms like YouTube, and then to step back and ask ourselves how we are being influenced by some of the same things. How our conversational mores and ability to focus and the ideas and perspectives we're exposed to and start to espouse ourselves are being shaped by these networks that have incentives and priorities that do not necessarily line up with our own. Even as we continue to discover and celebrate all of the gifts that we have been offered by these tools and technologies, it is prudent that we refine our ability to talk about and look for solutions to the downsides and to understand what we give up in exchange for these superpowers that we've been granted. It's possible to maintain a sense of awareness for these things, I think, so that when a new scandal erupts, one that includes hot-button keywords like child porn and pedophilia, we might use that moment as an opportunity to address the root systems that culminate in these sorts of events, rather than fixating on the hashtagable, relatively superficial versions that allow us to feel a momentary sense of outrage and righteous revulsion without ever having to face the uncomfortable reality that our behaviors and priorities are part of what allow these more headline-grabbing situations to occur in the first place. Thank you. 
The book that I'd like to recommend today is one that I am just finishing up, actually. So I haven't read the very end, but the book has been so utterly fascinating that I feel great about recommending it regardless. It is called Pale Horse Rider, William Cooper, The Rise of Conspiracy and the Fall of Trust in America. And the author is Mark Jacobson. This book is about a man named William Cooper, who, whether you've heard of him or not, he wrote a book called Behold a Pale Horse, that between that book and his radio show that he hosted for much of his life, and a great deal of what you might call a certain type of activism and talks that he gave and things of that nature, he is connected and has been connected to so many different movements and so many different collections of what we can loosely call conspiracy theories. But part of the reason that his conspiracy theories, even the ones that go way out of left field. He was associated with all kinds of alien-related conspiracy theories, Illuminati-related conspiracy theories. He is celebrated in numerous rap albums. The world of hip-hop, the world of Harlem at the time, when the genre was being defined, was highly informed by his work. This guy has been connected to just an incredible amount of dot-connecting, paranoid thinking, and in some cases, instances of a broken clock being right twice a day. He was very clearly an incredibly intelligent dude who also happened to have some interesting personality traits that led him to lead a very fringe lifestyle in a lot of different ways. So if you are keen to hear about a character who is central to so many different things that happened in the 20th century, but also, importantly, things that are happening now, a whole lot of the language that is being used by everything from flat earthers to survivalists waiting for the government to collapse, things that they are saying, phrases that they're using come from his work, whether they know it or not. And if you're curious to hear about a guy whose life itself kind of binds together in what almost seems like a conspiracy theory type of manner, the way all the dots connect and orbit around him as a centralized character, I highly recommend picking up a copy of Pale Horse Rider by Mark Jacobson. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsknowthings.com. You can find out about the tour that I'm currently on and get tickets, if applicable, at becomingtour.com. And you can find my advice column about life at somethoughtsaboutliving.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I am Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Instagram, Twitter, and yes, YouTube. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.